Mabuhai. You are listening to the Decolonizing Medicine Podcast with Jamie Panetta. My guest today is Joanna Latori, pronouns they, she, and sha. Joanna is a gender, queer, multi-ethnic, Filipinx scholar activist from occupied Ohlone territory in California's Bay Area. She is currently a PhD student at the University of Washington's Indigenous Wellness Research Institute and is working on a culturally embedded intervention for substance misuse at a Native American residential boarding school. Mix Latore's research focuses on the movements of decolonizing Filipinx in diaspora, disproportionate mental slash health burdens of queers and people of color, and community-driven healing initiatives. In this episode, Joanna shares about her scholarly work and how it connects to navigating daily life and familial relationships. If you are new to this podcast, let me quickly introduce myself. I'm Jamie Panetta. I use he, him pronouns, and I am a queer, non-binary trans person and a practitioner of Hilot and Chinese medicine located in Baltimore, Maryland, which is the traditional territory of the Piscataway. My ancestors are Tagalog and Chinoy, and you might hear my animals in the background of the show. Sometimes they make a little cameo. But anyways, let's get on with our show. Hi, Joe. Hey there. How are you? I am good. I'm so happy to talk with you. I know. Me too. It's good to see you. For those of you listening, Joe and I actually met met several years ago because we were both living in Olympia, Washington. I don't know, in the early aughts, something like that. Yes. <laughs> A long time ago. <laughs> A really long time ago. And we were also chatting about how one of the events that we have in common is going to the first Encapia conference, which was, I think, in 2008. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, 2008. Um, And we were also, we both attended the Filipino caucus in the Encapia National Queer API Alliance. Um, The big, the big convening, it wasn't conference, it was like convening, had a different name. Yeah, it was like the, it was the first of its kind with, you know, queer API organizations that were serving like the nonprofit sector. Yes. Yes. And we both attended the Filipino caucus and the Filipino caucus was, um, we were, we only talked about food. We didn't talk about like Filipino issues per se or, or anything political or about gender. <laughs> what happened? It was so funny. What happened was that, Somebody did the ask, like proposed an icebreaker that said, what was your favorite Filipino food? And then the circle just like went, kept going on and on and on about food. Like every time someone mentioned something, we were all getting like memories and like, oh yeah, my grandma used to make it like this. And yeah. So the, the icebreaker question took over. <laughs> It was only that question for like whatever two hours or however long the caucus was. When we only talked about our favorite food. It was so hilarious. I think I said Shopal was mine. <laughs> or Katakata. I don't remember which one. Those are two of my favorite Filipino foods. But it's, it is a very like 
strong cultural characteristic. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we center on, you know, I mean, we, so much of our, our, like, cultural, you know, it's almost like our, our epistemology comes out, like our, the way that we see the world comes out when we gather around food, you know, it's actually really deep, you know, it's like, we joke about it, you know, it's, it's funny, but it's really deep. It, there's a lot to it, you know. And that's also how we started talking it, how we re- reconnected was because I had post- posted something on Instagram about, I think, stinky food. And then you responded <laughs> in my DMs about stinky food. And I was like, okay, we need to talk. Yeah, we need to talk about stinky food or, or whatever it is that we need to talk about. But yeah, <laughs> no, I wrote like an essay. I wrote you like an essay in the Instagram like DM. Yes, <laughs> because you're like hella smart and you're doing some really awesome scholarly work. Oh, thank you. For those who don't, who aren't familiar with what you're doing um, academically, would you mind describing that? Yeah, I would. I would love to. Um, um so. <clears throat> I am currently a second year PhD student at the University of Washington School of Social Work, and I am being trained in their, they have an Indigenous Wellness Research Institute um, in the School of Social Work. So I'm being mentored. Um, One of my primary mentors is Tessa Evans Campbell. Um, she's, uh, She's an amazing Indigenous woman. She actually developed the, um, historical trauma framework. It's a multi-level historical, historical trauma framework. Um, so she's really great and she's helping me out, but my work in particular, uh, centers on the Filipino diaspora. And there's been a movement in our diaspora around decolonizing, um, that started, I think it started, in the early 2000s, I got involved in around 2010. Um, and it was, it's really been spearheaded um, by Tita Lenny Strobal. And, but it's been picked up, you know, by many various communities and has expanded and evolved. And there's like a lot of different interventions that all kinds of people are making and doing. Um, so, my my scholarly interests circle around or center on um, Filipino health and mental health disparities. So, you know, for example, I was reading today a study about um, uh, misuse of prescription drugs, basically. And um, there's, you know, that 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 is, uh, there's racial differences and ethnic differences based on who is misusing pres- uh, prescription drugs. And um, so for, for like the population in general, white people have the highest incidence of misuse of prescription drugs and um, Asians have the lowest misuse. But if you take um if you take that asian category and you break it into um the sub the sub ethnic groups so vietnamese chinese filipino and i think there was an other category um filipinos are 
quite a lot, coming quite a lot, like almost twice as high as those two other groups, Vietnamese and Chinese. And their numbers are very close to uh, white folks who report misusing prescription drugs. So there's all kinds of examples of this type of thing within mental health and health. And so my, my question is about, you know, does this movement of decolonization, does it help with any of our mental health disparities? Like, is it, is it healing? Like people, leaders in the movement say it's healing, you know, including yourself, you know, you're, you're a healer, you're doing work with communities and individuals. Um, And so my question is, you know, does decolonization, can we say scientifically that it does help? And, and, and then if we can, if that ends up panning out, then we can start to develop interventions that then, um, you know, can really, can really start to change how our, our health and mental health looks as a community. Um, can I ask a couple clarifying questions about the research? Yeah. Is it, are, you, are we just looking at populations in the U.S.? I am, yeah. It's, um, <clears throat> it is really, you could probably imagine like with this type of research, it's really easy to get, um, to have a question that becomes unanswerable. So you have to, you have to try to limit uh, the scope quite a lot in order to get findings that will be able to be utilized. So mm-hmm. even though it's, I do read a lot about Filipinos in the Philippines and then, you know, other, other par- sections of our diaspora, uh, my, my research specifically focuses on the U S. Okay. And then, um, for, for this research, what does, what do you qualify as misuse? Um, for the study, so I, that was from a study that I was reading. Okay. So the question that they were using, they had this question that said, um, you know, have you ever used a prescription drug? And then they gave examples of like, you know, opiates or benzos or that sort of thing. So have you ever used a prescription drug for anything other than its prescribed usage? Got it. Very broad and roomy, you know, like that's a very broad and roomy. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it could be self-medicating of some kind, recreational or whatever. Right. Got it. Um, So what has been, what has surprised you in doing this research and how has it transformed you? That's a really good question. Um, I think for, for me, you know, I was, I was transformed before I started this research path. So when I was, you know, so before I got connected with a decolonizing movement, um, I didn't like have a, you know, like I didn't like know my purpose. You know, I was really disturbed by a lot of things that I was seeing. I was extremely disturbed by um, the way that the Western world has interacted with the environment. I was heartbroken about, you know, clear cuts. Um, At that time, I was like learning a lot about 
race and racism. I was doing some studying in regards to um, the African-American diaspora and specifically with, you know, descendants of of the slave trade um, and how that was playing out politically uh, with regard to the education, Brown versus the Board of Education and um, those type of things. And at that time I was working um, at a juvenile maximum security prison. And so I was seeing the effects of racialization really intensely because you, it, when you go for folks who have been inside of a prison, um, it's not a metaphor, you know, it's very literal. The numbers are very literal and you see them and you feel them and they, you know, so, so I had been, before I met, before I got involved with uh, the move, the decolonization movement, I was, you know, disturbed. I was really, really bothered by what was going on in our country. So, and then, you know, I had been um, kind of in a place of seeking different forms of employment. I had worked in the service industry for my entire adult life at that point, and I wanted to make a difference with, like, you know, my, my kind of, like, population that I... I, so I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and my population that I enjoy working with the most is teenagers and young adults. Um, and so I kind of decided to get a degree, a counseling degree, and I wasn't decided, you know, which type of counseling degree to get. And then I read about the, you know, social workers of all the counseling degrees have an ethical mandate to fight for social justice. So I was like, okay, that I need to do that. Um, but the idea at that point was just to get a degree so that I could like, you know, run groups for kids, you know, and young adults and um, try to impact that kind of individual level of, um, you know, the harms of race, racism and racialization and, and disparity and stuff like that. And so, Anyhow, I had happened upon the movement, the decolonization movement, and it was the first time that I felt that there was a discourse happening that included not only racism, but the environmental problems, um, the struggle for indigenous peoples, um, you know, the the indigenous peoples' struggles for like sovereignty and land rights. And it was kind of the decolonization movement encapsulated kind of like everything that was bothering me about the world. Um, And so that was kind of my moment of transformation. And then the degree happened. I got the degree um, because I wanted to impact young people and then I met my thesis advisor, um, Tyler Arguello, um, and you know I I worked with him for two years and and aimed my thesis at this decolonization movement. And that that then I was like all of a sudden a researcher. You know, it was just like these circumstances just aligned, and um, yeah. But there's been a lot of transformation for sure in that like winding road, you know? Totally. 
So my next question is what has been challenging knowing what you know and then navigating daily life and familiar relationships? Let me deal with this cat for a second. Hold on. Yes, please. <laughs> Talking. Come here. I think he might be resting now. We'll hope. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> I also have animals, so sometimes they're like making guest appearances and cameos. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I'll ask the question again. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, what has been challenging knowing what you know and navigating daily life and familial, familial relationships? Yeah. Um, it's really, it's really, really interesting, you know, being, um, so kind of like taken up by this mission, you know, um, of, of trying to uncover some of these ways that we can shift the, the world or whatever. Um, my family is not, um, they're not, you know, they, they are all amazing people. They care about the world. They're not like aloof at all, you know, but they are not like, you know, I'm kind of like up to my neck in, in wanting to, uh, expand liberation and justice, you know, and there is a line to walk with people that you care about who may not be fully as invested as you are about whatever it is, you know? And for me, part of my strength and part of my joy is really, really connected to my family. So, um, you know, like I invite, they're just not really that interested in, in what, like I, I, so I, uh, during my master's program and my mom, I've told this story before, my mom knows, but during my master's program, I had, I had applied to this research symposium, which is like this competition of, you know, research projects, which I did not win, um, sadly, but, um, <laughs> I invited my mom and, you know, part of the process, you have to like turn your research into like two pages, um, and say, and, and that's your, your application to the symposium. So I gave it to my mom and she, she came and she supported me in person. But at some point I had asked her, you know, Oh, what did you think of the paper? And she was like, yeah, I didn't read it. And I was like, Oh, I was like, why not? She's like, it's kind of boring. Um, <laughs> and for those who know me, you know, my mom, is where, you know, my, my mom is my, I'm, I'm biracial. So I'm half white and half Filipino and my mom is the Filipino one. So she's just like, it's, it was boring. I was like, okay. But she, I mean, you know, at the same time, like she's really proud of me that I'm digging into the culture, you know, she's really, and, and I would say the same for my uncles and my grandma when she was with us, you know, they, they, don't necessarily, you know, like think as deeply as I do about the problems that we're facing, but I mean, they've lived them, you know, they've lived the problems. My, where my mom and my uh, uncles 
went to where they grew up, there's, there's KKK there. Like they went to school with the children of members of the KKK. And that's not an exaggeration, you know, and they know who those people are. And they were, you know, they were the only Filipino family and there were very few other like quote unquote minority families in their school uh, system. So they kind of, you know, I mean, it's like you and I have lived it too, but it's a different, yeah, different time. And we also were of a different generation. And so our opportunities are, look really differently. Um, a lot of my family thinks I'm nuts to go and study traditional medicines. Yeah. Like Chinese medicine and also um, uh, Hilot. And they're like, well, so why, why don't you want to work in a hospital? Yeah. Or like, why do you want to be a nurse? I don't, why wouldn't you be a real doctor? <laughs> I'm like, but this is like something else. Like it, it is like, sure. Like I would like income and there's this other stuff that I'm trying to unravel. And I totally, I totally get how complicated that is. Yeah. Cause they're, they're, they're in a different space and like, yeah. Like I used to be a lot more judgmental of like political differences. Yeah. Um, and I, I've just, I'm like learning a lot more compassion and a lot more understanding around where they're coming from. Um, and it's complicated. It is complicated. It's super complicated. And, you know, I mean, you know, similarly, when I went back to get my MSW to become a social worker, my mom, cause yeah, she always wanted me to be a nurse, you know, but I'm squeamish. So there's no way that's happening. Um, but, but yeah, when she, when I was going back for my master's, she said, oh, good. Then you can work at the hospital. Cause she's seen, you know, she's met social workers at the hospital and, um, that was her. And I was like, no mom, I actually did end up working at a hospital briefly. Um, but, and I, you know, there's some security in that, you know, um, and that's yeah. an option for me. I feel like our parents, well, I, I can't speak for your parents, but my parents are very keenly aware of the effects of capitalism and like how they've had to survive in capitalism. And so doing something that appears contrary to what they've done to survive is like very scary. Yeah. And my parents get very scared that like, I won't survive that. Like what I'm doing with my life it, um, makes me like materially insecure. And sometimes it does. Yeah. Like they're not, they're not wrong. Right. Yeah. And there's, you know, I think there's a lot for, especially for the, the generation that, that, had to immigrate, um, you know, like the material conditions were severe, you know, like my mom, um, my mom, you know, they, she lived in a hut before she came here, you know, and that's, that's the truth. And, um, mm -hmm. so, so yeah. And then, but then like, I, you know, I know all of this stuff because I, I studied it about how it got to that level of depletion. You know, it's like 500 years of Western countries coming in and, and pillaging, um, pillaging all of the resources. And then, 
you know, basically the U.S. in particular, you know, set up a puppet government that in that puppet government uh, siphoned. I mean, Marcos, you know, you can just say Marcos and everyone knows what you're already talking about um, with with how he manipulated the World Bank and the IMF to extract, you know, dollars out of the Philippines. So anyways, it's just a, it's a tragic, tragic story. It's, it's extremely sad. And till this day, you know, Filipinos in the Philippines, the vast majority survive off of $2 a day, you know, that's the impact of, of colonization and greed and, um, yeah. And then on top of that, you, you can say that. And then in addition, the indigenous groups in the Philippines are in an even more precarious position because those are still, you know, similar to indigenous groups around the rest of the world. Those, they, they are often the land defenders. They are often the water protectors and, and there is military, you know, not, not like sometimes like governmental military violence, but sometimes like extra, you know, with Duterte we see the extrajudicial killings and I haven't like seen studies, but I'm like, okay, the implications are that these are corporate interests who have hired, you know, paramilitary or contract workers to go in and assassinate the leaders or, you know, that kind of thing. So anyway, I got on a major tangent, but it's not a bad thing. Um, so with, with having all of this complexity on like, you're talking about complexity and, and a lot of tragic, fucked up, traumatic shit on like a global level yeah. um, that is also present in the realities of like the familial level, like one-on-one interpersonal stuff and then also personal stuff. Like, how do you navigate that? How do you make that easier? Yeah. Um. It's super hard. I mean, you know, I already shared, you know, my family is mixed uh, racially and um, so there's a lot of different and we have so we have, you know, several members of the family who are white. And so they don't they don't even though they are like doing work around understanding more and more about race and racism um, there's blind spots, you know, like we, I think the conversation you and I got into was about, was about, you know, interacting with white folks around our foods and, you know, our foods are, well, they're in, they're an embodied practice, right. And they are also, um, representative of our, our natural, our, our indigenous sciences. Um, they're representative of, you know, of our survival of our ancestors, our ancestors, you know, choices to preserve our food practices are intentional. It's not accidental. It's intentional. Um, and, 
because they wanted us to, I mean, I believe that they wanted us to continue to be in contact with the wisdom that they had about the world, you know, and there were a Mm -hmm. lot of mechanisms that um, were trying to extinguish that knowledge. You know, the Catholic church is a major one. The, at the U S the mechanism for the U S was the school systems. We, we exported white teachers and actually other professionals to go and, you know, infiltrate the Philippines and set up schools and they used Western textbooks to educate the the children. Um, Is English still one of the official languages in the Philippines? No. So it's, it's, but it's still heavily utilized in schools. Um, I believe Tagalog is now, they call it Filipino. Uh, I think that's so weird. I don't know how much I can criticize because I grew up in diaspora, but I'm like, wait, why are you calling the language Filipino when it's, there's like thousands of languages in the Philippines and why are you using a Spanish word? Yeah. Yeah. So, but okay. So let me jump back to like navigating, you know, the, the navigating the complexities of, all of these global dynamics that are inside of my family, you know, um, we have had moments where some of the non-Filipino family members, you know, make fun of our food or, um, you know, other, or, or complained that it smells, you know, or, you know, and it's, it's a very, it's calm, right? Because it's two cultures, it's two different cultures. So it's like the stuff that, you know, I mean, I was actually discussing this with my roommate who is also biracial, but she's not Filipina. She's, um, I don't want to out her here, but she's a wonderful, wonderful person. But we were speaking, we were watching, okay. We were watching the wire speaking of (laughs) Baltimore. Um, I still haven't seen it. Oh my God. (laughs) it's a thing it's a thing it's good um so no so the the one of the main characters was eating we call it the crab butter right so when you crack open the crab and the the head there's like the guts yeah and we love it yeah you know i don't know if your family also practices that oh yeah they they eat the whole freaking crab oh my god it's like I, i was confused when i realized that like americans just eat the legs yeah I was like, wait, but the, like, what about the rest of it? Right. So, you know, so she, so we saw this happening on, on a television show and she was like, oh my God, that's so disgusting. And I was like joking with her because we troll each other back and forth. So I told her, you know, oh, you're being anti-Filipino. That's like the best part. Right. (laughs) So anyway, it's just like, yeah, you know, it comes up. It's not that, you know, one is good or bad but it's cultural differences. And the difference is when the person is white and operates with that power and privilege in the world is that that power and privilege translates onto whatever the cultural conflict is. And so it's not just that, you know, it calls up, it calls up all of the historical trauma, whatever you want to call it, the ancestral memory. Mm -hmm. Now we have, 
they, we have epigenetics, right? Which, which says like, oh yeah, these things really are passed on generation to generation and we can prove it in a science way, you know? Um, so when a comment like that happens inside of that power and privilege dynamic, the weight is really different. Um, and so sometimes, honestly, I don't address it. I just like, you know, leave it alone because the cost can be high. Yeah. And I mean, the cost is high either way. There's like things about the formation that just, I will probably always be sad about, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and like, like what I have to, I have to be strategic about, you know, what, what I choose to, what I choose to address and what I don't in the family setting, because the family, like I said, for me is very central to my joy. You know, we do have, that's one thing, the Filipino-ness of my family, you know, it made it into those, the little like white enclaves of my family. Like they come and they bro down with us, you know, they, they're present and they, you know, understand about like, Filipino type, there's like things that they have done to bridge, you know, and that in a way that makes it like really beautiful and whole. Please tell me it's magic, Mike. <laughs> we, <you> know, <laughs> we should, we don't, Mike, we used to, we used to, um, when, when our grandparents were around, but although we're now coming into a phase where we're getting, you know, I have a nephew and other, other little ones are on the way. Um, and my brother's a musician. So I feel like we really should, you know, do some music together. Like, I feel like that would really deepen our, our family practice. You know? <laughs> Filipinos love music and they love eating. Yeah. As a group. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So for every episode, we do a community shout out uh, to just highlight whoever is doing some really awesome work in our communities in the in the BIPOC slash people of the global majority communities. Um, and I wanted to know who you want to uplift, who you want to encourage people to check out, maybe like throw some resources their way. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I am one of the one of the core leadership uh, folks at the Center for Rebylon Studies. And this is an organization that has really been on the forefront of the diasporic Filipino movement of de uh, decolonization. Um, and it's a nonprofit and we do we have like a lot of different offerings, you know, it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit sad because of the pandemic, you know, because our work is really, really in person. Um, we have hosted, I believe, four international conferences. Um, 
but obviously, you know, and then I think we've done a couple of symposia as well, but, you know, we, we love to gather together and people travel from around the world and, um, at, to these conferences. And we just haven't, you know, like so many, so many organizations whose work is really in person, we haven't done it for safety. So, but we did pivot and we, um, we have been doing some online offerings. Um, and, but yeah, we just are trying to really help with, with folks who are wanting to start that or who are already on that decolonizing journey. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's a precarious, so, so the decolonizing journey is precarious also because there's a lot that can happen around appropriating culture. Like, and that's not what we're about. You know, we're not out here saying like every Filipino needs to go get a Kalinga tattoo or, you know, like, appropriation can happen, you know, within the Filipinos are not a monolith. Right. Right. Like they are specific nations within the Philippines. Right. Yeah. But we do encourage like a deep inquiry into specific lineage, like your specific lineage, your specific ancestry. um, And, and that that's important, you know, and like one of the things I like to say, um, is that I I have specific ancestors, you know? It's not when I'm talking about ancestors, I'm not just like, I am, you know, there is like, yes, there's a lot of ancestors out there, but I have specific ancestors, some of whom I've known during life, you know? And my work, you know, specifically with my grandma, who I was very, very close with, um, like I want to, I want to make her proud. I want to uplift her, her life and her struggle. And, and, you know, um, she went through a lot to get, to get me here, you know? Um, so anyways, that's a little bit of a side offshoot, but I think that it's really important, you know, for folks who want to connect with CFBS, which is how we, you know, that's our little acronym since our name's really long, but you know, we, if you want to come, you know, participate in what we're doing, you know, that's what we're doing. We're trying to be, you know, we're trying to help each other walk towards our own stories and uh, uncovering what the colonization did to our family specifically, because we believe there's healing in there, you know? Mm-hmm. For folks who want to find out more about CFBS, where, where should they go? I need to look up the website. We have a website. <laughs> so it is center for Babylon studies.org. All right. I'm going to put that in the show notes so that people can, can have it written. Um, okay. What is one thing you would like listeners to take away from this episode? That's such a good question. You gave us many things. <laughs> I guess I just want us to be able to create the world in which we want to live. You know, and I think that that's, that's really, there's no one right way. Like I'm not into 
hegemonic knowledge, right? I'm into multiplicity, diversity. There's a lot of good work. If you look around, there's a lot of good work that needs to happen. And so, I mean, so there's this author that I really loved when I was um, in my early 20s, but he's unfortunately taken a really bad turn in terms of being anti-trans. So I'm not going to drop his name uh, here, but his work about uh, the environment really touched me when I was younger. But he used to say, the good thing about things being so fucked up is that no matter where you look, there's good work to be done. Mm. I appreciate that. That makes it feel so much more accessible to do decolonizing work when everything feels overwhelming. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Like literally the the post on Instagram that we reconnected about was, or reconnected through is um, about stinky food and like taking up space, like getting into our food cultures and unraveling what we have, what we are constantly being reinforced with as undesirable or disgusting or inhuman. Yeah. All of that stuff. Like you can, you can make that practice accessible in just the most mundane aspects of your life. Yeah. Last question. Yeah. How can people connect with you and how can they support your work? Oh my gosh. Um, come play. <laughs> um, I don't have a lot of, of outward facing, um, you know, I don't have like a website or um, anything like that, but um, I am, I do have a profile on center for studies.org and you can reach me on my email there. Um, and yeah, let's do this. Let's, let's make some waves, you know, like reach out if you feel called to and um, yeah, I would love to connect. Thank you so much, Joe. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. This episode is the season finale of the very first season of the Decolonizing Medicine podcast. I am beyond grateful for all the folks who got to be part of this project for this year, and I can't believe it's already been a full year of doing this podcast. We will be taking a break for June for Pride, and then the next season will start again in July. I have another QT BIPOC Qigong course coming up um, and it's going to be Tiangan which is which translates to heavenly stem. This summer cohort for 2022 will be from July 3rd to August 21st and registration will open June 1st and it closes on July 2nd. So 
head to linktree slash Jamie Panetta Healing Arts for more information on that um, or sign up for my newsletter. If you have been considering joining my Patreon to help support this lovely podcast and the other work that I do, now is a great time to do it. On May 30th, I'll be changing the threshold, minimum threshold to join my Patreon from $1 to $5, um, just as a way to simplify my work and make it more sustainable. My public gratitude shout outs on Patreon are actually going to move to the podcast. So I'll be shouting out folks who join my Patreon through my podcast just to connect people a little bit more so that they can really see how much the support from community is part of this podcast. Last month, I did a lovely interview with Dr. Paige Young and Dr. Tamsin Lee for Beauty as a Birthright. And that episode is now out. You can check out their Instagram at Beauty Birthright Pod. Maraming salamat for listening to the Decolonizing Medicine podcast. If you want to support this work via Patreon or apply to be a guest on the show, go to linktree slash Jamie Panetta Healing Arts. Music is by Amber Ojeda, Head Candy, and Rocky Marciano. Big thanks to Amaro McCann, my beloved, for audio engineering these episodes. Last but not least, thank you to all our listeners and supporters out there. Ingat! <laughs>